I invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible handy, there is one at the end of most of the pews. And I'll also remind you, you may, um, I guess we, we, we want to pause, I guess, at this point. I, we're a third or maybe a little bit more than a third of the way through the book of Exodus. As you'll see today, we're going to uh, condense the plagues into uh, one lesson today because I think there's a main theme we can pull from them. If you want to see where we're headed, there are a few of these blue cards out on the four-year table as well that shows you where we're headed in our sermon series and then also in our Sunday school series working through the Ten Commandments. We're about halfway through the Ten Commandments in our Sunday school time. Just a wonderful additional time for us to hear God's Word each week. And then this will also show you some of where we're headed uh, in Exodus as well. I think we should, in a, in a humble, grateful way, acknowledging the Lord, also feel encouraged that we're working through this book of Exodus. It's not always the easiest thing. In some ways, it's easier to sort of grab a passage here that we like to hear, or grab a little verse here, or grab a little verse there, and, and, and sort of take those in. It's a little easier to digest sometimes than really doing the, the harder work, as it were, that we're doing, plowing through the book of, of Exodus, working through these passages and seeking to see the transformation that God will bring in our lives through it. But I think we should be encouraged. I think there's a good, healthy, godly encouragement we can take from saying, boy, God's brought us through a good bit of Exodus so far, and to be excited for what he's going to continue to teach us as we move through uh, this book. Uh, we are arriving today at this uh, passage that I guess you would say we are now fully into the meat of the book of Exodus and what we'll see today, we're going to read some of the verses and then we'll reference the next few chapters with these different plagues, is a confrontation, a collision of monumental proportions between Moses, Moses who's kind of the royalty reject, who has fled from Pharaoh's household. He'd been adopted into that family, been out into the wilderness now for 40 years. Now he's arrived back into Egypt declaring God's work to bring his people out from human terms and looking at him in human perspective. There's not a whole lot to commend it, but God is doing a work. In contrast, he collides with Pharaoh, this mighty leader in, in the known world at the time, and from a human perspective, the pinnacle of power and might, these two men are going to collide, and God is at work in the midst. We're going to see God's sovereign power displayed and for us today it'll be a helpful and I trust encouraging reminder to us of just who God is and how his sovereign power and work is being poured out in our lives even today as well we're just going to read the first 13 verses of uh, Exodus chapter 7 we haven't done this for a while but let's stand uh, today since it's a little shorter passage been trying to be a little easier on us with the longer passages we've been reading uh, but let me read to us Exodus chapter 7 verses 1 through 13 it says and the Lord said to Moses see I've made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. And you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You may be seated. As you do, let me pray for us again. Oh, Father, we are so grateful today again that you have not left us in darkness, but you have shown immeasurable kindness to us, and part of that is giving us your word to reveal to us who you are. Oh, Lord, let us see glorious things of you today as we spend this time looking at what your word teaches us about you and about how you relate to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We look at these verses. In a sense, we see a precursor to the next two or three or four chapters where we will see these plagues come. In this passage, you have this miracle of the serpent displayed. Pharaoh called to release God's people, but his hardness of heart towards the will and the work of God. In the chapters that follow, some of us may be familiar with this story. Some of us, it's the first time we see the Nile River is turned into blood. We see Pharaoh refusing to respond, and then we see frogs produced all over the land, climbing in the houses, climbing into their bedrooms and bathrooms. We see then next the gnats coming. We see flies coming after that as Pharaoh continues to be resistant. We see then a transition. Apparently those all came upon the people of God and the Egyptians. And then as we move into the fourth plague and on, the plagues just begin to land on the Egyptians alone. Their livestock dies. That's the fifth of the plague. Boils come upon the skin of even Pharaoh himself and all of those people of Egypt. Hail lands uh, just on the land of Egypt and excludes the area of Goshen where the Israelites are. We see the locusts coming to devour. We see the darkness that's overwhelming and stays in place. And then we see the final plague that we'll actually look at a little bit more next week as we talk about the Passover, this plague of death, this plague of death. And we see in each one of these situations a prideful persistence, as I said, on the part of Pharaoh. 
We see that he fails to respond to what God is trying to show him and display to him in powerful ways. And I just want to remind us again that this is a sobering message to us of what a privilege, what a pleasure it is, what an opportunity it is to have a tenderness of heart to the Lord. Something He grants to us, if we have even just a little bit of it, a little bit of sensitivity to the things of the Lord, we ought to be so thankful today. And at the same time, we ought to be so fearful for those areas of our life where we feel the calluses building, where we feel the thickness coming into our hearts, where the softness seems to be fading and hardness seems to be coming in. These verses remind us of that. As we look in particular through these plagues, I'll just tell you there are points along the way where Pharaoh kind of says, okay, we'll do it. We'll let the people go. And then usually about as quickly as those words flow out of his mouth and about as quickly as the pressing plague passes, he wants to reel it back in. So we're not going to do that program. We see Uh, what I would call a shallow repentance on his part, or just a false repentance. And again, that reminds us to think today of our own hearts, that true repentance is coming to see that the Lord is, is Lord, not just that we've got to figure out a way to escape some difficult situation. He's made our life tough, and so we've got to get around it. But we say, God, I recognize my tremendous need for your mercy and grace, in our case, through Christ. So we see this shallow repentance in these verses. There's a lot of stuff here. We see God's grace abounding. It looks like a lot of judgment, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Certainly it is. These ten plagues are a lot of judgment. But there's ten of them. He gives, God, he gives Pharaoh opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to respond. And then, of course, as I mentioned, many of these plagues... God shelters His own people from them. He protects them. He guards them. God's grace is seen there. Just as we know today, if our hope is in Christ, if our trust is in Him, we are shielded and we are protected by God's grace. And He is so patient with us. We see all these things laid out in these verses and there would be much to say about each one. What I want us to focus in on, though, today is the display of God's sovereignty in these verses. Because I think it's all over the place here. God's sovereign power, God's sovereign judgment, and His sovereign will are displayed. And He shows us how He dominates and controls for us all our enemies. We are people that have enemies. We don't have the same kind of enemies. Pharaoh was this earthly enemy and oppressed the people. It was a real tangible thing. We look around, and what are our enemies? Scriptures reveal to us our enemies are, one, the world that we live in. It's a world full of sin, and we get drawn into it and caught up to it. It's a world that doesn't encourage us to seek the Lord, so that moves us away. That's an enemy of us. Scriptures remind us that our own flesh, our own sinful nature, is a huge enemy of us, attacking us. And, of course, the evil one we know is lurking to attack us. That threefold enemy we face. And so we need, I think, a reminder. And these passages give us a reminder of how the sovereign Lord breaks through and overpowers our enemies on our behalf. As we think about these verses, I'm reminded of our youngest son, our two-year-old. He uh, has a little habit in the 
Every couple of weeks or so, it's not an every night thing, but he will, a couple of hours after going down to bed, wake up screaming and fussing a bit. Of course, patients or I will go in and check in on him. When I go in and check in him, it's, it's become a general theme that we've discovered. There's a precipitating issue. I go ahead and go through the, the questions to find out what the issue is. I say, buddy, are you upset? Say, yes, dad, yes. So what's the problem? A bear, dad, a bear. He's got an imaginary bear that's gotten in his mind that's scary and fearful for him. So I figured out how to get him to calm down. I haven't read it in a parenting book, but this is how we do it at the Peter's house. I said, baby, you want dad to pile that bear dead? You want him to pile that bear dead? Baby said, yes, dad, yes. I said, well, you lay down to bed, and daddy will take care of piling that bear dead. He goes right to sleep. I don't really know how to pow a bear dead. Uh, can't say that I would know how to do that if I actually faced a living bear. But what's the point? A little boy needs encouragement to know that there is somebody that can handle the things that threaten him. And we need that encouragement Today as well. G.K. Chesterton, some of you may be familiar with, British journalist, author, Christian, uh, wrote this uh, along similar lines. He says this about fairy tales. I found this and I thought this was very interesting. He says, fairy tales are not responsible for producing fear in children. Fairy tales, he says, don't give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly. That's in the child already because it's in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of the boogeyman. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the defeat of the boogeyman. The baby has known the dragon, or in my case, bear, Intimately, ever since he had an imagination, Chesterton says, what a fairy tale provides for him is a, is a night to defeat and kill the dragon. Fairy tales teach him, and listen to this, because we need to hear this today. Fairy tales teach him that these limitless terrors have limit, that these shapeless enemies have enemies, that these strong enemies have stronger enemies in the nights of God, and that there's something in the universe more mystical than darkness and stronger than strong fear. What we have before us in these verses is, of course, no fairy tale. It's a true account of what God has done, does miraculously in His people, but it displays His sovereign power, and it's a reminder for us in truth, in reality, in this life, that we have one who conquers all our enemies, and we can trust in him to handle that. On your bulletin, if you want to follow along, we'll go briefly through a couple of points. The main idea then, I think, is that God is sovereign. That's what's being displayed in these verses. And so we can trust, we can put our lives fully in his hand and know that he will overcome the enemies of his people. I want to zoom forward to one other picture that I think will help us to think about this. Uh, perhaps a number of you have seen the Passion of Christ movie that came out, I guess, what, seven or eight years ago now. And it adds a little bit of 
Hollywood uh, interpretation to the events in the Scriptures when it begins the movie. It begins with Jesus bowed over as we think about God conquering our enemies. Jesus bowed over on His knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. As you recall, a weeping, uh, tear, straining so hard that he has tears or uh, drops of sweat of blood flowing off of his brow. And the movie adds in something that's not in the Scriptures, a serpent signifying the evil one, weaving its way around his feet as he's kneeled down, earnestly praying, preparing to go to the ultimate battle for us on the cross to defeat our enemy, sin, and the evil one. And, and as Jesus is praying earnestly. He completes his prayer. And you recall he stands up. And for me it's such a powerful picture of what Christ does for us as he picks up his foot and stomps on the head of that serpent, killing it dead. Christ is the fulfillment of all this sovereign display of God that we see in these verses. And we'll come back. To that in a minute. I just want to get you thinking about that. Let's talk for a minute about the sovereign power of God we see in these verses. Look back at the passage in Exodus 7 with me, if you would, to verse 5. God says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. You remember Pharaoh, if we've been with us a few weeks or know back in Exodus, uh, the Pharaoh said, hey, who is this God? I don't know what God you're talking about. Why should I listen to this God? Well, God says, guess what? I'm going to show up and this guy's going to know who's talking to him and who's dealing with him because I'm going to display these signs of power. God reveals miracles, not, as I've mentioned before, as sort of card tricks or something to just show off his power just flippantly. He reveals them to show us about himself, to show us who he is. So we see that. And then if you look with me down in verse 11, we read it says, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men, the sorcerers. They did these. Uh, and then they, the magicians of Egypt, also did this the same by their secret arts. And then we see God's power overwhelming those secret arts. A couple of things I want us to see there. One is obviously the reality that these miracles, these plagues that we see, are supposed to reveal to us God's power. God is at work. Hold on to that thought. What's interesting to me to see in this verse 11 is that the world always tries to mimic the power and the working of God. The world promises power. It gives us things. In the case of this passage, it's these magicians doing these weird signs. We don't know how exactly they did it, but they did it in some way. The world gives us alternative sources of power than God to turn to. Money's a big one of them. Success, image, approval, those are just sort of on the individual level, our, our whole nation as a, as a whole, the uh, success of our economy, the success of our military, the success of our education system, the success of whatever. Those things offer alternative tracks of power that we can look to. And I just want to remind us today that the living God says that He is the ultimate source of power. He consumes those other things. He eats them up and shows himself to be dominant upon them. So we're fools, really, in every way, and I do it left and right, that we turn to those false sources of power, try to find our life in them. First thing I want us to see about God's sovereign power, the second thing, and it's 
really a more important one for us. Where does God display his sovereign power miraculously, most fully? Where does he display his sovereign power miraculously, most fully? These verses are screaming for us to look forward to the work of God on the cross. To what Jesus has done in displaying both the judgment and the mercy of God on the cross. His power is displayed in Jesus' rising from the dead, that He has conquered even death. And again, it's a huge reminder of us that we don't foolishly, we don't lightly take our lives and say as believers we trust them into the Lord's hand. We do that for good reason. Because the sovereign God has raised up His Son. We've seen evidence, miracles, proof that He is at work just as God showed miraculous works before Pharaoh to demonstrate who He was. That cross, that resurrection is the greatest one for us. Second thing we see by way of applying this issue of sovereignty is the sovereign judgment of God. That's a, that's a heavy topic. Start thinking about the judgment of God. Even a lot in our culture, we, we, we might talk about being spiritual. We might run into people who have a spiritual interest. But when you start to move to something like judgment, the idea that somehow this divine being uh, is one that judges humanity, that's a hard topic to get into. We might also, even if we talk about it, we might sort of picture it as an Old Testament kind of thing. That's sure. I'm not surprised we're seeing this in Exodus. That's how God rolled back then. But now he's got a new program. Well, it doesn't quite work that way. Jesus talked as much about hell, about the judgment that we deserve in and of ourselves and our sin. Uh, Revelation refers to it repeatedly. Uh, Romans 1 even tells us that God's judgment is being revealed right now. And so as we look at these verses, we're reminded of God's judgment and the great joy of having the righteousness of Christ. Someone to allow us to escape His judgment. Just as He was gracious to protect the Israelites from much of the judgment that came upon this land of Egypt, He's gracious to shelter us from it as well through the work of Christ. Uh, Richard Niebuhr put it this way, describing some number of years ago, the gospel that we are tempted to believe in. And I would say the gospel that even much of the Bible-believing church is tempted to serve up to us. And he talks about the consequences of that as well. He describes this false gospel that's floating around out there. He says, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. That's the message that's pervading our culture as Christianity. The Bible presents something very differently. It presents this judgment head on. And Niebuhr says this. He says, Absent our sin and divine wrath, judgment and redemption, it's not surprising that people have come to dismiss the idea of God not because it's implausible, not because it's unbelievable, but because it's superfluous and boring. So judgment may sound like something we don't want to talk about, and these plagues are indeed horrible things. I don't want to make light of them. But until we get the reality of God's righteous character and His judgment, 
we're, until we get that bad news, we're never going to really grasp the beauty of the good news of what Christ has done, as Roman tells us, so that God can be just and the one who justifies, who declares us righteous in Christ. It's a beautiful thing indeed, God's judgment. William Cooper wrote this, and I, I think about it as we experience and live in a world. We, we may not think about it every day, but we live in a world where we're sinful people, where God's judgment, there's the disasters, there's disease, there's struggles. We see God's judgment being displayed. We don't label it that way, but that's what it is. And Cooper said this. You remember William Cooper, we mentioned a few weeks ago, a hymn writer of the 1800s, had his own deep, dark demons that he wrestled with. He said this. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your heads. Just a reminder that indeed God is a terrifying God. There are clouds that come in. There are clouds of His judgment. And yet the fresh mercies through Christ break with blessings upon our head. Third thing we see in these verses is the sovereign will of God. These other things have been a little bit challenging perhaps for us to work through. Uh, This one's interesting, and we don't have time to extensively treat all of God's sovereignty and that issue of his will. But look with me at verse 3. Certainly you may have noticed it while we read through these verses. God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It should be noted that elsewhere, uh, you can jot them down if you want. Chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 32. Chapter 9, verse 12. We're reminded that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It wasn't just God hardening him, but he made his own choice to turn away from God. This is a tough passage to understand God's sovereign will here. And I think what's helpful for us as we wrestle with this, how does this work with God's love? Why would he do this to Pharaoh? Why would he allow this to take place? What we need to understand is that our default position as human beings is hardness of heart towards God. That's the default. That's the way we run. God's grace and mercy is to come in and soften a heart. So when the Bible says God hardens Pharaoh's heart, really what it's saying is he's just moving on past him. He's just letting him sit in that hardness and become even more brittle. And again, it's a reminder of the mercy and grace to us that God has softened our hearts. As I put on your bulletin sheet, I think, a quote from C.S. Lewis in the preface to his Paradise Lost. He says this, sobering, sobering thing. Those who will not become God's sons become his tools. 
God offers the gospel. God offers grace for us to receive. God offers for Pharaoh to respond. We're reminded as we look at these verses, however, that God's mercy is his choice to extend. If you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 9, I'm going to read it just for us to wrestle with it and be thinking about it. Uh, Some verses from Romans chapter 9. It's all the way in the New Testament, past uh, uh, the Gospels, past Acts, and before you get to 1 Corinthians and so forth. It says in verse 14 of Romans chapter 9, really Paul helping the church to kind of process this reality of God's choice to show mercy on whom he'll show mercy. It says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and hardens whomever he wills. You will then say to me, why does he still find fault, right? That's the question we're all asking when we look at this. Well, how can you blame him? God, let him be in that situation. For who resists his will? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Big topic. Tough topic for us. But a reminder to us today, what I want us to see is God's sovereign will is a powerful and mighty thing. And also that God's sovereign will is a gracious will to us. If we have put our trust in Christ, if we know the Lord Jesus, we can give him praise and thanks that ultimately that comes from him. He chose to show mercy and not to allow us to remain in our place of hardness. We conclude looking at these verses today. I hope we've seen some of God's sovereignty displayed. Again, His sovereign power, His sovereign judgment, and His sovereign will. And as we've looked at this, we said we're not looking at a fairy tale. But to come back to where we started, there are some elements of this that display the victory of a knight over the dragon. As we look at this passage, we see that the cross is that place, that weapon of God's victory and what he does in Christ. His incarnation, the incarnation of Christ is his troop deployment, if you will, sending out the troops onto the field. The temptation of Christ is that first uh, battle, that first significant battle where Jesus prevails. The working of miracles that we see throughout Jesus' ministry and across the scriptures are a display of the tremendous weaponry of our God in this fight against our enemies. The entrance into Jerusalem of Jesus, you think about Palm Sunday, a celebration of his entrance, that entrance as well is the the launching of his great offensive, his great spiritual battle, his surrender to his captors, Jesus' voluntary surrender to his captors is like a Trojan horse entering in to display 
victory. His crucifixion is his master battle plan. And as I said earlier, this miraculous work of his resurrection is like the flag of victory of the kingdom of God reigning over the defeated kingdom of his enemy. Let's conclude with one other story. Mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier, and a couple of fellows reminded me of this story a few weeks ago. As we hear about this sovereign God, it's an intimidating thing. What do we do with this God that works this way? Do I want to move towards Him and trust Him? Or do I want to move back from Him? I'm not really sure. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the silver chair, C.S. Lewis writes this about an encounter between Jill, a young girl who knows she's thirsty, knows she needs something to drink and encounters the lion Aslan. And I'll conclude with this. Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, uh, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might have well asked the entire mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. And it didn't say it as if it were boasting or as if it were sorry nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, now coming another step nearer. I suppose I must look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise You that we can know from Your Word the glories of Your sovereign power, Your sovereign judgment, and Your sovereign will. Oh, and how we rejoice today that You dominate, that You reign over all of our enemies, all of Your enemies. And Lord, we pray that in that You would move us closer to You. That though there are things about You that are greatly intimidating to us, we might come close and know Your protection, Your grace, 
your love that we might drink our fill from your streams of living water. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.